Good morning, church. I'm excited to be here this morning. Roberto, appreciate what you said about reverence, that that would characterize our view and looking towards God in the moment that we, the moments that we spend together right now. I really appreciated that last song. That's a good time oldie from many years ago, but it's so true. Uh, the truth of those words of obeying and trusting. And I think that's a good foundation for that which I'm going to be sharing here this morning. We are in the middle of a three-part series. Uh, As we talked about as leadership here at the church, uh, we decided to do this focus on discipleship uh, based on uh, Mark 1.17. And it talks about Follow me, be transformed by me, and fish, we just got fish there, but fish with me uh, is the phrase, and the idea that discipleship in the Christian life is all about uh, these three things, and we're in an exciting moment to be able to take three weeks and just focus on this. As was mentioned, Pastor Seth is on his way. I exchanged some WhatsApp messages with him this morning. I believe it's Friday morning that they're going to be arriving here in Sao Paulo. And we might even just send out a message to you all on WhatsApp and encourage your prayer for them as they make that transition. He sent pictures of the number of boxes and the bags that they're bringing with them, and we just need all the paperwork to go well as they come into the country and make that transition. So if you would, remember that. And there's going to be some specific ways that we're also going to share here at the end of the service and then throughout the week of how you can be involved in helping to welcome them as well. But as we take this morning then, we're going to focus on that middle phrase of be transformed, be transformed by Jesus, something that comes to all of us as disciples of his that we are to grow in and that we are to be changed in. It's a huge theme, transformation. The whole Bible is about it. And as I thought about how do I begin to, in one sermon, talk about transformation in the Christian life in just one sermon. Philippi talked about the call last week, the call to follow me, and how that Jesus unexpectedly, humbly, requiringly even in his position, called the disciples out of their mundane lives to this radical discipleship that would ultimately and completely transform who they are. So instead of trying to encapsulate the whole story of transformation here this morning, I want to talk about and us to think about what was it like for the disciples in those first few months after the call? When you respond to something, when you respond to a call, a new thing, you really have no idea what you're stepping into. And there's a series of stories here through the end of Mark chapter 1. Philippi spoke through the end of verse 20, and so I'm going to start at verse 21, and we're going to work through the end of the chapter. And we're going to see Jesus, through a series of interactions with the disciples, showing them specific elements of what it means to live and to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. All of us have that need to have transformation happening in our lives. So what was it? What were the things uh, that Jesus brought to these disciples, these new disciples, for them to grow in during this time? Let's start with verses 
21 through 34 of Mark chapter 1. I've, you'll see some scriptures coming up on the screen a few times as we work through, but I'm not putting all the scripture up there, so I invite you to be with your Bible open, with your device, to be able to look and to follow along. Verses 21 through 34, they're going to bring us an initial point of how Jesus' authority over all things was trans- is transformational to the life of a disciple. Verse 21 says, They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Have you ever heard somebody talking about a new concept or a new thing uh, and it just really captured you and it was like every word that they said that they brought you were like yes that's so true that makes sense and it fit exactly with what you had been thinking and it was like they had authority over the subject and there's this idea here that there was something about what Jesus brought in that moment of that teaching which was different than anything else that the people had heard up to that point. It was though he understood and knew exactly what he was talking about. He was teaching with power and as though he had the right to say what he was saying. Matthew Henry, a commentator that I like to use, says about this passage, but Christ taught as one that had authority, as one that knew the mind of God and was commissioned to declare it. I always like the way that Mary Fawcett talked about authority when she taught the parenting class. She talked about authority as being just power. Power, but rightly used, with the right to use it. I think that for the disciples back there in that time, they lived in a time where they were subject to so many different forces in ways that we aren't right now. We have an app for everything. If we need to go somewhere, we punch a couple buttons into the app and an Uber picks us up and takes us there. They were subject to the forces of the world around them in some ways that we are insulated from today. And so, you know, they needed to go everywhere just by walking. They were maybe subject to sickness, to disease, in some ways that our current world has tried to isolate us from. As where we were reminded this week, the world and the raw forces that are at work in it are massive, and we are small before it. There was the stories this week of of the submarine, the Titan, that went missing, and then it was discovered that it had imploded under the massive pressure that it was four kilometers down from the surface of the sea. Every 33 feet, When you go into water, the atmosphere doubles. These are massive forces that are at work, and we stop and we think, wow, this world is at work around. These are forces that we are subject to. But Jesus is going to show us that his authority is even over all of these things. 
And he's teaching in that moment. It's as though the devil, he senses a challenge to his authority. And he speaks through one of his minions, this man who had an evil spirit, to attempt to disrupt Jesus right in that moment. Instead of disrupting that moment, it was as though it demonstrated in real time the authority of Jesus right before the eyes of the people. They got to see this in action. The devil, as he so often does in that moment, he said what? Jesus of Nazareth and called him the Holy One of God. So he mixed truth and a lie, the evil spirit did, as the evil spirits often do when they speak into our lives, and, and almost presented Jesus a, a double temptation there. So on one hand, he's saying Jesus of Nazareth, and we see it other places in the Bible where it talks about Naz Nazareth being a backwater place, a place where people understood that nothing good could come out of Nazareth. So he says Jesus of Nazareth and kind of sticks him to it with that, uh, with that little turn there. And then at the same time, he calls him son of God, the holy one of God. And Jesus is going to hear that at various times as though he could be tempted by that. You know, the devil was saying who he was, but he was changing it in that moment. What does Jesus do with evil when it is spoken? And we can learn from this. He immediately quieted the evil spirit. He told him to be quiet. He did not give him space to speak. He did not give him space to be able to discuss. He didn't discuss with this evil spirit. He immediately told him to be quiet. He immediately cast him out. He did not dialogue. Jesus' authority is clear and it's active. And I just encourage us to think about that as we give space to voices in our lives throughout our week. The devil is there trying to distract us, to lead us in different directions. He comes with these twisted words that he tries to slip into us. Jesus doesn't give him space. Let's not give him space either. And that authority that Jesus has over evil spirits is available to us as well. And so second, we're going to see in verse 29, going on to the next little story here, that Jesus' authority to also extends to our physical bodies. Even sickness is going to respond to Jesus' authority. Verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simeon and Andrew. Simeon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. And that evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many of various diseases. So the disciples have seen their master's authority able to have power over evil. And here they see uh, Jesus healing and responding to something as commonplace as a fever. You notice the disciples, uh, they have this attitude of immediately going to Jesus, of immediately seeking him, because they had seen it. They were getting the sense. They knew that they could turn to Jesus. Do we do that? Do we immediately turn to him and seek him? And Jesus, when he heals, he not only healed her of the fever, but it says her strength was renewed such that she was able, Simon's mother-in-law, to be able to get up uh, and to be able to serve him. And then it says that Jesus healed many. So people heard about this. People came. They came around. And you get the sense that the disciples' understanding that Jesus can handle 
anything that comes. The same voice that quieted evil can quiet evil and anxiety in our lives. The same voice that healed sickness can give us peace in the hardest, the hardest situations that we face. He can cause us to stand firm, put us on our feet in the middle of situations that are the hardest that we've ever faced in our life. When you become a disciple of Jesus, you are no longer subject to the authority of evil spirits, no longer subject to the authority of sickness and disease. And going back uh, to that beginning, you're not subject to the uh, whims or the comings and goings of new teachings, because in Jesus, we find the ultimate authority and the ultimate truth to be able to live our lives. His voice needs to be the strongest voice in our lives, and it needs to be the voice that we hear over all others. So that is the power of Jesus' authority. And in the next story, we're going to pivot here a little bit because we've seen Jesus with the teachers. We've seen him interacting with this evil spirit. The whole town's showing up to see Jesus. There's so much to be done. Things are happening. Great things are ahead. At least you get the sense that this might be what's passing through the disciples' minds. And there at the end of verse 34, it's going to say, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And there's a, there's a little turn here, and we understand that this is going to set up what's going to follow. Because Jesus, he's worked hard, uh, but he's still holding back. He's establishing basic truths. He's building up the disciples to what he wants them to learn. He falls into bed that night. It's been a hard day's work. And then verse 35 comes. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Jesus got up early. He went out into the darkness. He found a solitary place. He got alone with the Father. And the crowds, they didn't bend him. He did not prioritize his sleep. He did not prioritize being with the people. He did not prioritize the disciples. He prioritized being with his Father. I was close to Fernie this week when I was studying this part and I stopped and I said the hard part about preaching is you get to a certain point and God puts his finger on something and says to you clearly you're not doing this either right and so as I preached you this morning I'm preaching this uh, to myself as well because Jesus he didn't need the rest that he needed from sleep so much as he needed the rest that was given by being with his father. He needed time with his father to keep him from being proud. He needed focus and clear-sightedness to remember why he was there and what he was doing, to not lose sight of his mission. And of course, Jesus did not need this in sort of the traditional way. He's God, right? But we see him time and time again throughout the Gospels repeatedly showing this 
to us, to his disciples at that point, so that he could model that for them, so that they would make that number one. That was the power of how his priority can transform us. The disciples had this reaction. They said, everyone's looking for you. But Jesus didn't care about that in the sense that he understood that there were bigger things that he was searching after, that he was called to do. And we see that appear in verse 38. Let us go somewhere else. Let us move on. We're going to go to the nearby village so I can preach because that is why I have come. That is why I am here. A transformed disciple, if we have been transformed by Jesus, we're going to understand that there's nothing else that demands our time as much as our time with our Father and our relationship with him. There might be many people who need things, many demands on our time, but that time with our Father needs to be number one. Not even the air I breathe is as necessary as me leaning on him. And here I just want to give a little bit of a side note in the middle of this message and stop us as a congregation just to reflect on the moment uh, that we're in right now because our spiritual leaders are important. Our spiritual shepherds are important. They're good and they're necessary. But have you noticed that we've been okay uh, the last two years since our dear pastors and their wives moved on from us during this transition? Christ is the leader of our church, and Seth and Kathleen are about to arrive. And I just want us to stop and reflect and say, have we said goodbye so that we can say hello? Have we let God fill the Nathaniel and Julie, Pastor Bill and Mary, sized holes that are inside of us, and maybe some of the other people? We've had some significant people move on. Because... I think when God gives relationships, he gives them as gifts, and he gives them for a time. And when he moves someone on, it's so that there can be space for the new relationships to happen and the new blessings that can happen. So we need to be careful about trying to fit a new relationship into a hole left by an old relationship or the expectations that will be associated with that will be, let's use the word, toxic. Uh, to the blessing that God wants to bring through the re new relationship. So we've seen transformation through the lens of Jesus' authority, and we've seen transformation through the lens of his priority and how this aligns. And in this final story that's here in this passage, we're going to see the transformational power of Jesus' compassion. In simple terms, it's just going to be another story about Jesus performing a healing. But there's several unique attitudes that I want to be able to pull out of this, these verses. Verses, verse 40 through 45, 44. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched him. I'm willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. 
See that you don't tell anyone this, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. This was a man with leprosy, and I wonder how you would have felt if you were in Jesus' shoes approaching this man with leprosy. How would you have responded inside of yourself? Would it have been your initial reaction? Would it have been repulsion? Would it have been fear? We're going to see the authority and power. We see it here, the authority and power demonstrated. But I want to focus on just a couple other things. There's the word indignant here in this passage. Jesus was indignant. And I was curious about this word. I went and studied it and looked at it. And actually, this passage is one of the more controversial passages in the Bible when it comes to the question of translation. Because if you look in other translations, the KGV, the King James Version, and the New American Standard, they use the phrase moved with compassion. Jesus was moved with compassion. There's another, the SV, I think, uses moved with pity. And what happens here is actually there's a number of Greek fragments on which the translation is based. The majority use compassion. Uh, the NIV used indignant because it appears one time thinking from this principle. Uh, would it have been more likely that indignant got changed to compassion or would it have been more likely that compassion got changed to indignant? And so the NIV makes that decision. Regardless of which one it is, is it compassion or is it indignance? If it's indignance, we might think about, well, what was he indignant at? Uh, could he have been indignant that the, the man said to him, if you can heal me? And he thought to himself, well, what do you mean, if I can? Of course I can. I don't think so. That's a, that's a, that's a reaction based on pride, and we don't see that in, in Jesus here. So we see then a mixing of compassion or perhaps indignance at the situation of a world which was created by him to be so beautiful, changed, twisted, affected by the sin that is in the world and the sin having come into the world, and maybe even anger. There's another translation that, tra that brings a little bit of anger here. My good friend Joel, uh, during a period of time when we were sharing a lot together about the loss of his wife, he said he was angry. He said, I have an enemy and it's cancer. You could see how oftentimes we face things in our lives and we see how sin has affected our world. And it is right and just to be deeply moved by that and to be moved with compassion. We see this in other places in the Bible where Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus uh, was found dead even before he raised him from the dead. This brings this idea of who Jesus is and how he responds to these situations. Thomas has talked here from the front before about the Chronicles of Narnia, and there's a, a phrase from the magician's nephew, which is about a boy, Diggory, who's on a long journey, and he has a mother who's sick. And he's seeking some way of healing uh, for his mother. And I'm just going to read it here. Diggory said to Aslan, he's talking to Aslan, who is the figure of God in this situation, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure mother? And up till, that, up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. And now, in despair, he looked up at his face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own. 
that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. Jesus cares. And as he stands in this place of ultimate authority, we see him also again and again showing his compassion. Leprosy was a sickness that was passed by touch. What does it say right here in the word? Jesus touched him to heal him. How would you have felt? I asked how you would have felt if that person with leprosy was coming to you, but how would you have felt if you were that person with leprosy? Jesus wouldn't have needed to have touched. He could have said, be healed, and he would have been healed. He reached out. He touched. Uh, we saw a really neat example of this a few weeks ago. The small group for Glenn and Prisca had a goodbye and had a number of people there. And Parto, uh, who maybe we could say is one of Glenn's disciples, uh, was telling the story of how he had gotten COVID and how quickly he was uh, getting really critical in terms of his situation. And Glenn pulling up outside his house with his car, seeing his state and saying, get in the car, getting in the same car with him, driving an hour and a half across the city to take him to the hospital. This disease, this sickness that's passed by air, sitting the same, not caring for his own personal safety in that moment to reach out and to care. That is the transformation that happens as we see Jesus acting in this way and that transformation happening in our own lives. As I moved to close uh, three years ago, shortly, after, shortly before our son Caleb passed away, I preached here on the passage that's going to follow these passages. So it starts in chapter two, and it's the story of the paralytic who was let down through the roof in this drastic situation, needing drastic healing, like so many other of these passages uh, that we've seen in other parts of the Bible, but that we saw right here, numerous stories. And I've said a couple times throughout the sermon that Jesus was building his disciples up to something. He kept saying, you know, we're going to move on, hold on, don't reveal yet who I am because he's showing the disciples a drastically different way. The disciples have the world's priority, the world's thinking, the world's way of seeing things, and this needs to be changed. It needs to be adjusted in them. And we see in this passage about the paralytic that in that moment when he's faced with this situation and this person before him debilitated, needing healing, Jesus says something completely different than he said up to that point. He says, your sins are forgiven you. In the world's thinking, that's a completely baffling statement. And if we're honest, when I read this story, and maybe when you hear this story, there's something that turns a little bit in you also. No, it, that's not what he needed. He needed healing. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. It's really interesting to note in that passage that the religious leaders who were there, they actually got it in that moment, probably because they didn't have compassion, right? So the compassion is what causes us to say, no, he needs healing, give him healing. But the religious leaders, their thoughts immediately was, only God can forgive sin. And it says that, that they were thinking that. And Jesus turns to them and he says to them, which is harder? to heal or to forgive sins. And that makes me think of another moment all the way close to the end of Jesus' life where he's hanging on the cross 
And the chief priests and the teachers of the law are mocking him. Chief priests and teachers of the law again. <laughs> they keep appearing like, you know, these bad figures in, these, in this story. And they mock him there and they say, he saved others, but he can't save himself. The high irony of that statement is the final destination of the transformational journey on which the disciples have started. They've seen Jesus having authority over demons, over sickness. They've seen how he prioritizes his relationship with the Father. And they know that his life is there to preach, to see his compassion. They see his indignance at suffering. And it was exactly that compassion, that love, that kept Jesus on the cross all the way to the end, come what may, so that you and I, here, today, could have salvation. So that every person, as I said back in 2020 in that sermon, can have a chance to be healed of the deepest sickness for which there is no cure if not for Jesus. And if you've studied church history or know a little bit about it, we know that every one of those disciples who are starting out so rough, so subject to their own desires, every one of them, with the exception of Judas, went all the way to the end of their lives and in the end of their lives, voluntarily giving up their lives, dying deaths of martyrdom, so that in their death, even as in their life, their lives could point to Jesus, resulting in others having salvation. That phrase, he saved others, but he can't save himself. This is what the people said when they saw him on the cross. They were seeing with physical eyes. They were seeing that physical healing. They were seeing that freedom from a demon, that that would be salvation. But the irony is that Jesus stayed on that cross in that moment specifically so that he could truly save all sinners from their own sin. So that he could say to that paralytic who was on that bed, not just your sins are forgiven, your sins have been paid. You have been bought. I want to invite us to bow our heads right now, and I'm just going to invite you to think about these thoughts and these concepts as they come across to you. We've covered a lot, uh, all in a short period of time, under this theme of transformation. But I want to ask you, what is it? What area, what part of what you've seen here in the word today has struck you and has said to you, yes, I need transformation in this area. Yes, this attitude is not active in my life yet the way it should be. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce says, some mortals may say of temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. 
He saved others, but he could not save himself. But because he stayed on the cross, heaven worked backwards and truly saved all who would call on his name. Are you in that camp? Have you opened your life to resolve the deepest problem that is in your life, which is your need of Jesus to make him first? And if you had, have, and you're on this journey of being a disciple and this journey of transformation, what is it that you've seen in the word this morning that needs to allow, that you need to allow space for him to be at work? I want to invite the worship team back here to the front right now. And I just invite you to keep your head bowed and your eyes closed. Uh, you can rise for singing as part of the worship as you want to. We're going to have people praying out here in the patio as well. You can come for prayer if you want to about this or some other thing that God's speaking to you about. But reflect on this. Where does God want to transform you? What areas does he want to work with you in?